0: Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. If you want to follow along in your Bible, take out your Bible, turn to James chapter 5. We're going to be in the first uh, half of the chapter this week. Next week, we'll finish up this series in James. But as we work our way through, remember our um, title of the series is Faith That Isn't or Faith That's Not Dead. And uh, what we're trying to remind ourselves, reinvigorate, Uh, Our faith and realize that the only way we're going to navigate this life and live it with purpose and meaning, accomplishing what God has for us, is if our faith is alive and active. Um, James will argue that if we're not working out our faith, if there's not an evidence that we have faith by what we do, then our faith really isn't useful to us. It doesn't really help us as we go through this life. And so we want to make sure that our faith is alive. This week, the big idea, as we work through this first half of chapter five, faith that's not dead invests earthly assets for eternal returns. God has given us assets in this life. There's things that we have in this material world. And if we get a view of what God wants us to do and how God wants us to live, there's a miraculous thing that can happen. We can invest those assets and gain dividends and returns that will last for all eternity. Now that is powerful, right? And so we want to learn that investment principle this week. So we are kind of focusing in on money. And with that, I got a question for you. How's your 401k doing? Uh, yeah. What 401k? How are you doing with uh, this economy? How are you doing with uh, this inflation, maybe I should say? How's your blood pressure, your stress level, right? Listen, not easy times to deal with and navigate. Uh, and yet, in spite of the reality that we live in a time where you might feel some pressure there, um, and I know many of us do and I don't mean to make light of it. It is difficult. It's frustrating, right? And yet, the reality is even in spite of that, we still live in the most prosperous country in the world. And fortunately, God's word talks a lot about money. Over 2,000 times the Bible references money. Money is important. It's a big deal. There's, the truth is that there's a lot of traps that we can get caught in with money. And so if we navigate it well and we learn what money's about and how we're supposed to interact with it, it can be a great tool. As I said, America, still the wealthiest nation per capita, um, in relation to the rest of the world, I know a lot of people, don't. we don't like to think about this, but it matters. If you have a household income of $50,000, you're in the top 10.6% of income earners in the world. We are a wealthy nation. We have a lot. Yet in spite of that fact, we're still pretty stressed out. We're still um, probably perhaps one of the more unhappy cultures. We struggle with money and wealth and all that we have. Research indicates that most households spend 10% more than they make regardless of their level of income. We have a lot, but it's not quite enough. We struggle with addiction and anxiety, and perhaps some of that's because Having so much requires character. It requires that we have an understanding of wealth, that we know what to do with it and how not to fall into the traps that are there for us. And so many in our culture do. We go headlong into a misuse of money and a misappropriation of it, not understanding how it's supposed to work. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book in it. He talks about first-generation millionaires and parenting and how difficult it is to parent with wealth and how they struggle with it. The complexity goes way up. When you're poor, as I was growing up, our parents could say, well, we can't get that, John. We don't have enough money. And in my household, we made a little more income, my wife and I, but with our kids, we could still say, well, we can't do everything. We gotta choose. But when you have a lot of money, you can't say it for those reasons anymore. You gotta figure out how to parent and how to not ruin your kids, right, with that wealth. And a lot of folks don't know how to do it. And so they don't handle it well. Um, this stuff filters into the church. Our perspective on things and stuff and growth and wealth. We, we have a tendency to count attendance instead of discipleship. How are people growing? We have a tendency to count in the church world, we call it butts and bucks, right? Instead of actual life change. We have a tendency to become critics instead of participants There's a lot of problems we have with this cultural issue. And so it's important we need to dig into it. I hope you're buckled up. Okay, I'm gonna try to give you a lot of good stuff today. We're gonna cover a lot of ground as we go through this passage. The answer to handling money well, handling all of life well, really is found in having a living, active faith. To be walking with God. To be growing and moving and being transformed in our relationship with God. We need him to navigate this life. We're gonna struggle we know that our faith is dead when we've started to put our faith in our money. When things are shaky financially, how solid are you? How grounded are you? Are you able to maintain ups and downs because your faith is really in God? And I'll confess, it's a struggle for me. Financial stress, financial issues, I struggle with and have. And I've really had to surrender that to God and gain the confidence that comes from really trusting in him. Money can be used to produce eternal results, as I said. God gives us resources and it can be used that way. But in order for that to happen, we have to be applying what the scriptures teach us. And that is this principle, that a living faith is in God, not in gold. A living faith is in God, not in gold. Let's read the first 12 verses of James chapter five. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers who you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Whoo feels like it's out of the Old Testament. Like uh, there's some fire there, right? Like uh, you got an Old Testament prophet hammering away at the nation of Israel, uh, a message of condemnation and judgment. Um, So what are we to do with this? I mean, the truth is that this was written to a group of people, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was a message for a group of people. And so it was written not to us, but it's written for us. And we need to learn the lessons that the people that this is written to, the trap they fell into, the sin they fell into, we do not want to sit under that same condemnation because of our behaviors. So this feels a little Old Testament-like, but another way, another passage that addresses some of the same issues is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul, writing to a young leader in Timothy, gives him this instruction about money and wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, he says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. There's a trap that money provides. It's seductive. It pulls us towards it. And in a culture where there's a lot of money and there's a lot of opportunity, it's a powerful temptation to misappropriate money and resources and to begin to worship it and begin to think that it's the Savior, that it could change everything for the better. I had a young man that was in my youth group for years and when he got older and he was out, he was in college, he said, he so said, Pastor John, money really does buy happiness, doesn't it? I mean, come on, let's be honest. It really does. Someone once said, if you don't think money can buy you happiness, you're shopping in the wrong place. <laughs> that was Donald Trump, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, uh, it, it's, it's, it's tempting to look at the world and go, oh, man, money really would change everything in my life for the better. That's why a lot of us have a temptation to get that win the lottery mentality. Because we spend more than we make, because we get under pressure, because things happen up and down, we start to think, man, if I just, if I just win the lottery, all my problems would be gone. If I could just succeed, all the pressure would be off. Truth is that one third of lottery winners end up going broke within three to five years. Pretty large percentage of them commit suicide. Some of them are even murdered for their wealth, right? A lot of them, their family relationships, their friend relationships are broken and destroyed because of that wealth. The truth is if we're honest, money can be a curse, not a blessing. That's why the Bible's full of warnings about money. It's dangerous if we don't understand it, if we don't have it in the proper perspective, if we don't have the maturity to handle it. When the McGuggerts of New York won the Irish sweepstakes, they were a happy family. Pop was a steam fitter. Johnny, 26, loaded crates on the docks. Tim was going to night school. Pop split the million with his sons. They all said the money wouldn't change their plans. A year later, the million wasn't gone. It was bent. The boys weren't speaking to Pop or each other. Johnny was chasing expensive racehorses. Tim was catching up with expensive girls. Mom accused pop of hiding the money from her. Within 2 years, all of them were in court for non-payment of income taxes. It's the devil's own money, mom said. Both boys were studying hard to become alcoholics. All had their uh, all of these people hoped and prayed for sudden wealth. All of them had their prayers answered. All were wrecked on a dollar sign. Think about how many times you know of a family that had great wealth. And the parents died and the children have to split this up and decide who's going to get it. And it destroys them. They hate each other. They fight each other as though they're um, enemies. They treat each other evil, right? Disdain. This is what happens or can happen if we don't keep money in its proper place, if we don't understand it. This passage that we just read, a scathing indictment of a group of people, uh, it's like, what am I supposed to take away from this? And I think there's some, some dysfunctions that we can pull out of this passage that we're meant to avoid, stay away from. Four dysfunctional behaviors that this group of people that James is writing to fell into, and for that they're being pronounced judgment over them by God. And so let's look at this passage and pull out these dysfunctions in the first one. I think we see, is hoarding. Hoarding. Hoarding isn't just that TV show where people pack their house with stuff and they can't get in. We all have a tendency to hoard in some way. I hoard my toys. (laughs) Took me years to get a dirt bike. I haven't ridden it in three years, but I'm not gonna get rid of it, right? It's mine, I'm gonna keep it, uh, no matter what, right? Took too long to get it. See, we, we all have a tendency to hoard something probably, to put something in a position of value in our lives that it shouldn't be in. It's a dysfunction. Remembering that you're a river, not a reservoir, is a principle that can help avoid this, this uh, pitfall. Things are meant to flow through us, not stop in us, okay? Um, they'll, they won't be good if they just stop with us and stay with us forever. We're given things, to steward them and to help others and to make a difference in the world. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 6 as he talks about money. He says this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust can't destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, is where your heart's going to be at. If our treasure is truly in God, if we recognize, as Jesus said, that the kingdom of heaven is of greatest value, then we will pursue it and we'll recognize the power in it. And remember, what we love and worship is what we become. And if we love and worship money, we don't become good people. (laughs) If we love and worship God will be transformed for the better. The second dysfunction we see in here is the dysfunction of cheating workers. Cheating workers. You all have someone who works for you. You have people that do work for you. Some people try to get out of every restaurant without tipping, right? Some people try to get off as cheap as they can, paying anyone to do any work for them. Don't think that's a great attitude and perspective. This audience that James is writing to, they are pounded on for cheating workers out of their pay. The antidote to that is to be honest and generous to those who work for you. I don't care who it is, do you have a generous attitude towards people who help you, who do things for you? That's the heart we should have. Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Money is a horrible master. Again, to serve money will cause us to mistreat people. But when we use money to serve people, right, it becomes a powerful tool. It becomes a blessing. It becomes something that can make the lives of others. uh, We can encourage them through that. The third dysfunction we see in this passage is the dysfunction of self-indulgence. He says, you've just used your money to appease and satisfy your pleasures and lusts and desires. I just took a steer down to the packer to get slaughtered. So when he says, you've fattened yourself for the slaughter, I got a picture in my head of what that looks like. Um, it's not an encouraging indictment to them. You just fattened yourself with your own stuff, and, and now you're going to get killed, Right? It hasn't done any good. It could have done good, but you've used it only for yourself. The antidote to self-indulgence, which by the way is not a good character trait, is to be generous, to use what you have to bless others. Listen to Jesus again, Matthew 6, 25 and 26. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? No, our worries take life away from us. They don't add life to us. The fourth dysfunction I think we can learn from this passage is a dysfunction of using others for selfish advancement. Climbing over others to get ahead. Using other people to get where I want to go, to acquire what I want to get. People are just a tool for me to gain for myself. It's a dysfunction, and having the wrong view of money can land us in that dysfunction. The antidote to it is to add value to others. And to help others succeed. As you go through life, if you have a heart and a mind and an attention to helping other people, you'll find that you end up getting usually where you want to go as well. Matthew 6, 31-34, uh, through 34, Jesus continues. So don't worry about these things. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's troubles or today's trouble is enough for today. (laughs) Maybe this is why Jesus in his teaching said Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm meek and humble at heart. Jesus wants to take the pressure off of us, right? The pressure the world provides. The pressure that looking at our stuff and our things and putting them in the wrong position, what it does to us, it's not good. It puts us under pressure that causes us a lot of problems. Jesus wants to take it away. If you fall into these dysfunctions, you're not going to have a meaningful life. A meaningful life comes from doing God's work, from doing the work of God on this earth. That is what we need to to come in touch with. That's what we need to get in touch with as we live our lives. And so putting stuff in the right place will help us invest in others, treat others well. That's the work of God. Graham Scroggy said there are two ways that a Christian can view his money. One is, how much of my money shall I use for God? The other view is, how much of God's money shall I use for myself? Money can be used to do great things, can change the world, can do so much good, can change people's lives for the better. It's a resource, just like any other. And it can be used to do God's work. If you struggle with this, as I have, I want to encourage you. We have a resource out in the back called The Treasure Principle. It's a little short book. It can help change your view of stuff and of investing your resources for eternal gains. And so I'd encourage you to pick that up if we're out of them out here. Order one online. Get it on Amazon. It's It's a pretty small little book, quick read. But it's a powerful perspective changer. We also offer financial peace here. And that is a way to get your finances in uh, upside down or right side up instead of upside down. How to view them correctly. How to manage your money instead of being managed by your money. And how to make sure that you're using it the way you want. A lot of people, when they think about giving, whether it's tithing at church or being generous with others, they go, I don't know how I would do it. I don't have enough money to get through the month. And I understand that. Financial peace can help get that perspective straightened so that you're able to be generous. If you wanna be truly wealthy, then learn to invest earthly assets for eternal returns. Well, as we move on in this passage, we've looked at uh, um, dysfunctions and a a view of money that can land us in a place of judgment before God. Next, we wanna move into a perspective on life that I think is really important. If the first half didn't uh, connect for you, this one will, so... This is, this is huge. As we get through life and as we navigate life, we need to maintain a focus and we need to have a perseverance. God has called us to live this life and to live it for him, to do good in this life, to make a difference in the world for him. And in order to do that, if you're anything like me, you gotta stay focused. I have a tendency to be a little squirrel, you know, um, to uh, have a little ADD. And I need help. I need reminders to stay focused. And so I think James is going to move into a section that will help us with this investing for eternal returns and making sure that our lives are being lived in a meaningful way. And so the second principle we see in this passage is that a living faith has focused endurance. Follow along as we read the next few verses, 7 through 12. Dear, Dear brothers and sisters, James says, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endured under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. Can you see how the Lord was kind to him at the end? For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my dear brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just simply say yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. When I was a kid, grew up, uh, my parents were missionaries, um, at least uh, from the age of 13 on through uh, graduating high school. And so um, we um, went to churches and presented the ministry and and asked people to support us, and they did. And so um, we moved out to Utah when I was 13, and we served in Utah with uh, Mormons, trying to reach them for Jesus. And, uh, and so he, about every other summer, we would get in a full-size Dodge van that my dad had purchased to um, be able to cart around his four children. And uh, six of us would get in this van, and we'd head from Salt Lake City, Utah, to um, uh, Canterbury, Connecticut. And we'd stop along the way at churches, and it was a long trip in the middle of summer. And there's a couple factors about this trip. There were four children there, about nine years in between, the oldest and youngest, And uh, and so we get in this vehicle, and there's a couple things that kind of, uh, I don't know, um, marked or um, helped define the trip. And one of those things is there were no screens, no movies to watch. Just let that soak in for a minute, those of you that have kids. No screens for a couple thousand miles. Secondly, we had no air conditioning in this nice Dodge van. And our trips were usually in July. It was warmish. There were times where we would over and over repeatedly ask my dad, are we there yet? Are we getting close? Right? There were times where we'd get a little bored and irritated and we'd start picking and poking each other. And maybe a fight would break out in the back of that van. Neither confirm or deny that, but it might have happened. And then there were times when we'd be kind of whining and complaining about the trip. Um, when I read this passage, I kind of hear James saying the same thing. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we sit around and say, Jesus, when are you coming back? Come on, man, things are hard down here. It's getting difficult. I'm under pressure. Man, things are going the wrong direction. Would you just come back? Kind of reminds me when we say, Dad, are we there yet, right? Are complaining And are asking, hate to tell you this, but it's not going to change when Jesus comes back. Jesus told his disciples, the date has been determined by God. And there's actually a perseverance and a patience that we're supposed to reflect. And what helped on our trips, helped keep us focused and maybe out of trouble, is if along the way there was a destination or a stop that we look forward to, you know, if we were gonna go see Niagara Falls or if we were gonna to go to Washington DC or, or see the Plymouth Rock, you know, boy, it, it kind of helped us make it through the thousands of miles of the journey that seemed to take forever, right? An outcome that we were looking forward to. The other thing that would help is if we were kind of productive, we had something to do as we were going on this journey. God has helped us by providing us a focus I think there's four things we can focus on from this uh, section that will help us persevere. Focus perseverance. First one is to stay focused on the mission. Again, saying, are we there yet? Jesus, will you come back? Again, it's not gonna speed it up. It's not gonna change the date when he returns. And so I think it's probably better, just like it was for us kids, to have something else to think about, right? And so what God has provided for you and I to think about is a productive mission to be a part of. We need to stay focused on the mission so that we know that as we get up and go to work each day, we're there to represent Jesus. As we uh, come home and we live in our neighborhoods, we're there to represent Jesus. That there's a reason that we're on this planet. There's a reason Jesus has left us here. And it's for a mission. Stay focused. You are to be growing and you're to help other people grow. You're here to plant seeds of truth, spiritual seeds as you go through your life. There's a mission, stay focused on it. Second thing, stay focused on your attitude. James says, don't grumble at each other, don't grumble about each other. <laughs> the judge is standing at the door, right? It's kind of like um, uh, when we're driving down the road and we start fighting a little bit, at times, every once in a while, dad would turn over his shoulders and say, do I need to pull over and stop? Do I need to whip you guys? Now, I know nobody gets whooped anymore, but we did on occasion. <laughs> Focus on your attitude. There really isn't much else you can control. You can't control other people. can't control what happens to you in this life in a lot of ways. But you can make sure you have a good attitude. Focus on examples that inspire you. James says, listen, what about the prophets? What about Job? These guys endured, right? Perseverance. They thrived under pressure. They did well with the tasks they were given, with, with the pressure they would give. If you think you have problems, just read Job, man. you'll be reminded that your problems aren't that bad. Job had far more than really probably any of us will ever experience, and he endured with patience. Read Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Get inspired to live for God, to endure through whatever your life is. whatever you're facing in your life right now, whatever troubles that you're encountering, whatever pressure you're under. If you're really struggling and you have no inspiration, read or listen to anything out of Tim Tebow's mouth, okay? That guy's incredible. I mean, he's always doing something amazing. He could be self-centered, narcissistic, just like everybody else said is at his level in society, but he's always doing something to help other people, to make other people's lives better if you want to be inspired, pick up something by him. I went to a global leadership summit event this week and I want to bring it to this community in August. We'll do it here. And part of the reason is because when I went in 2020, when things were difficult, I was inspired by business leaders and, and, and leaders in the world, in our country, who are making a difference for the better. They're not sitting around saying, why is everything so bad? And you know, um, whining and complaining and thinking about their problems. They're making the world a better place. This is how we need to live our lives. Focus on examples that inspire. Last, focus on the truth. James says, don't make an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say yes and no. What was happening here is the people of Israel were lawyers and they're really good about creating loopholes. So they could take an oath. Oh, I swear by heaven, I'll do And really, what it did was get them off the hook of being accountable to do what they said. This was a practice that was common among the Jewish people. And that's why Jesus and James said, don't do that. Just be honest. Deal with the truth. Don't make promises you're not going to keep. Stay focused. What you focus on determines what you'll see. Are you focused on what Jesus is doing in the world? I don't know if you've heard about it, but... There's something interesting happening at a college in Kentucky. It's called Asbury University. It's a Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky. They started a chapel service on February 8th, and it's still going, hasn't stopped. Thousands of people are flooding into this building and in this community, and it seems like I don't know what you think about it, but it seems like there's something happening that might be called a revival in this little town. I don't know, some Christians don't really believe in revival, I know. But then I'm reminded, some people didn't believe the day of Pentecost either, right? These guys have been drinking, you know. The Holy Spirit moves in our country and in our world. And I know a lot of people have been praying for revival. And it might be starting in our country. There's something happening there. You know, And with revival, here's what happens. God's people come under conviction. They recognize they have been doing the wrong things. They haven't been doing what they're supposed to do. They come under conviction, and then they confess. Incidentally, that's how this event took place in this college. Started off with conviction and confession, and then it moves to repentance. A movement away from that sin towards God. And then comes a cleansing and a restoration and healing. We live in a sinful world and we battle it all the time. Sometimes it takes us over and we get clogged up with toxins that come from the sin in the world we live in. And there's times we need the Spirit of God to wash over us, to wash through us, to cleanse us. I wonder, are you so focused on the problems in our world that you might miss it if God started to move in our nation? So many people have asked me again since COVID, we need revival, we need revival And my answer. My response is always, is revival happening in you? Because that's where it starts. Is revival happening in me? Am I willing to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Am I willing to confess, to turn away from my sin and turn to God and let him cleanse me? You don't have to go to Asbury. It doesn't have to happen in a special event. It can happen anytime, anywhere, any place that you and I turn to God and he wants to do it. In us, he wants to move in us. I wonder if you're willing, if you're open, or do you have your Christianity so figured out, so organized, so put in order that you're not open to God doing something different? Would you, would I be willing to respond? Because God wants to move. We do need revival in our land. We do need people to come to know Jesus. But I promise you, it starts with you and me. Would you allow God to bring you under conviction? Would you be willing to confess and repent? God, thank you for loving us, for for doing a work in us, for offering to cleanse us. We need cleansing. God, would you move in your people? Would you move in us, your church? Would you bring us to that place of renewal? So our faith is in you and not in gold, so that we have a focused perseverance to continue to do what you are calling us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.